numbers. Look at what, what the UCP has done in this province, and they can spout all the facts they want about beds and recovery programs and giving out free naloxone kits. Where's the proof that that is making the difference that we need? Are the numbers going down? No, if you look at any of their charts, those numbers are going up. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you should check out the link in our show notes and find other podcasts similar to this one. My name is Scott Schmidt. I am your co-host. I'm here alongside Jeremy Appel, my good friend and fellow co-host, who is just coming off of like the biggest interview of his life and uh, sitting down this morning for what will clearly top that for his will outrank that as we and, get and into of it, course I... um scott is referring to um me going to stampede and interviewing a horse i, I did that yesterday <laughs> i i i wasn't referring to that but i definitely want to hear that story too i came on this morning expecting you to tell me a little bit about your one-on-one interview with justin trudeau so like we 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 are doing the gauntlet of podcast recording in early july and so this particular podcast we're uh, talking on right now, I think is like due for either end of the month or early August. So most people will have already heard your interview with Justin Trudeau, but I don't know anything about it. So that's just too bad for the listeners. So tell me, how did it go? <laughs> I, it, it, I, you know, I will say he was uh, very gracious with his time uh his press people told us five to ten minutes and then they said five to seven minutes uh he gave us 15 um he's very charming uh he he answered all my questions uh, with the exact answers i thought he would answer them with which I, i i think shows um the how polished he is at what he's doing. Well, it it shows how polished he is, but (laughs) it also shows how landing these big interviews with these, uh, you know, massive public figures doesn't necessarily have a lot of journalistic value because you're not getting anything out of it. That's funny that you would say that actually, because we were talking about that before you uh, came on air today. Like, exactly that like the uh sitting here with kim and and mo and i were talking just like it's you think it's great to get that interview but like really what's happening what are you getting out of it right and i kind of compared it to when we had nenshi on and sort of like the one interview we've done on this whole podcast where like we weren't really in charge there were we (laughs) no well nenshi is very uh uniquely media savvy like trudeau but but i like I mean, I, I interact with Nenshi a lot more than I interact with Trudeau, and uh, I think he's more uh, more blunt, more like like puts himself out there. Like you're, you're more likely to get a substantial answer out of, but but I, knows what he's doing is all we mean. Like understands the media yeah. conversation. Like you're not yeah. going to sit like whether you like or hate, like whatever your feelings are about Justin Trudeau, you're not going to sit down with him and and have more experience in the scenario than he does right like he's pretty adept probably at sitting there and just rattling off like if you if you ask a question he's got the polished political answer in a file somewhere that he can just like rolodex to yeah and give you his answer for i'm sure well it was especially in 15 minutes um you're not gonna dig too deep with him uh you know i i i'm glad he 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 gave us that opportunity of course um but 
Yeah, I mean, it was what it was what I expected, and but I, uh, I it's still kind of cool to interview the prime minister and I, you, try and I, try and uh, you know and, and to do so in a way that isn't uh, like, hey, how's it going? What's your favorite color? Like to actually um, you know ask him what I think a lot of people want to ask him. Um, but so, yeah, well, um, you, I'm excited you, to hear it. Yeah, you'll have heard it by the time this episode airs. So, um, well, we'll probably just link to the sprawlcast in our. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, uh, let me know what you think, but I mean, that <laughs> some time away. Um, well, I will certainly. Uh, I, I'm excited to hear it, anyways, because obviously, like you said, it's something that you like. You want to be able to yeah. do, and I mean, like whether my parents he's were like, not, yeah, so proud of me, and right, like whether he's Paul, whether whether he, whatever you get out of the interview or not, it's kind of cool that in Canada you actually have some access to the the prime minister. Like, there is no way an independent journalist in the United States is going to get a sit down with the president one-on-one, right? Like that's, yeah, it's never going to happen. Right. And so like that accessibility to the Canadian prime minister is that's at least somewhat cool. Like you have a chance of pieing the prime minister in the face, right? Like you're not getting within a thousand yards of the president. So, um, yeah. but anyways, must have been cool. Enough about me. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Um, who yes, I, I, I think we've been, been patiently sitting here for a while now because we were late. <laughs> well, but we've also been wanting to have this guest on since since we started, really. Um, when I talked to her this week, I said when we first started the podcast, we sat down and we like brainstormed about 20 guest ideas. And she was like in the first five or six that we thought of. And it's 15 or no, 14 months later and we're finally getting a chance to sit down with her but we're really excited so you're right let's absolutely jump right into it and uh it's like i think our second or third actual forgotten corner guest in a row which i'm pretty happy about because like we uh we probably only had like a handful of actual medicine hatters on the show uh so we're really excited for that so let's get into it our guest this week quite simply is one of our favorite people in the forgotten corner she is the living embodiment of turning tragic circumstances into an ongoing positive and has dedicated her life to saving the lives of those our society leaves behind. Kim Porter is a provincial leader with the group Mum Stop the Harm, an organization she joined following the passing of her son, Neil, who died in 2016 of an opioid overdose from an addiction to painkillers he developed following a serious injury. It's a life full of uphill battles that she didn't choose, but it's one she's embraced with unbridled passion and commitment. We are so honored to welcome Kim to the show this week. We're going to take listeners through Neil's story, as well as detail some of the work Mum Stop the Harm is doing around Alberta, and we'll most assuredly find some time to critique our current provincial government's efforts to undermine what these mums have worked toward. Kim, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thanks, and I'm glad to be here. Really appreciate you showing such patience this morning and letting us uh, chit chat about that. But I mean, it's not often my co-host chats with the prime minister. So I had to, uh, that's the first time I've talked to him since he's had the interview. So we had to do a little we bit of We should get him on Forgotten Corner. <laughs> and that's exactly right. And if you take, if you pick the 9am time slot on this show, you're risking a, a 9-10 start anyways, based on just sheer awake time. Right, Jeremy? yeah i mean it's possible yeah i, I mean I, I you know i'm not gonna give you the backstory of why i was late but no, it's I, fine it's fine it, it's, it's not, not a very good story but it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be yeah. like i used to say to the uh teacher when they say like scott why are you late i'm like because the bell went before i got here you know it's like, what do you want from me? i don't got much for i don't got an answer for you anyways kim we have like we said we've been wanting to have you on the show for a really long time and uh we have all sort of been I'd say like online friends as a group for a while now. And uh, we've been really like, haven't had it, like haven't really had a chance to sit down and chat with you. And I've read about Neil's story and your story, but I've never actually gotten a chance to hear it from you. And so we're really excited to be able to bring you on the show today to discuss that. Uh, Before we get into Neil, can you just sort of introduce yourself to the listeners and and give them a a little bit of a idea of who you are specifically sure um i um am a a mom 
and a wife and uh, a former educator. I um, went to university uh, down east and came out west. Was fortunate to land a, a teaching job. Um, worked for 40 years. Um, my passion was working with children with uh, significant needs. And um, along the way, I had three children. Neil was my oldest firstborn son. And then I had two daughters, Erica and Grace. And um, I still feel like I'm passing through Medicine Hat. Um, <laughs> Don't we here. all? Yeah. Yeah. Arrived here 40 years ago with a backpack and got a little bit more than a backpack now. But um, um, I do miss the water out east. Um, I live close to the river, so walk down there every day. Now, when, you're, you, when you say out east, do you mean you mean the Maritimes, not Ontario? Like, yeah, I grew up in uh, Ontario and then moved to Quebec, but I went to university in New Brunswick. Okay. Now, yeah. are aren't you heading out that way sometime in the near future? Yeah, like in about a week and a half, I'm heading to Nova Scotia to visit my sister, and then we're heading to New Brunswick to visit my brother. So by, I mean, you'll have already taken this trip by the time the episode comes out, but I think I remember talking to you, I was, I'm going about uh, six hours east and uh, you took that just a little bit of a step further. I'm a bit jealous. You get to go all the way out to the ocean. So um, we, we've kind of talked about Medicine Hat as being that city that just sort of like sucks you in, especially like for people, you know, you're not, like you said, you're, you're from the east and, and you, you love the ocean and things like that. Do you, do you, can you pinpoint what it is about the hat that kind of sucked you in when you got here? Well, definitely um, my career. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher from when I was five years old and came here and got offered a teaching job. And so I, um, I stayed. Um, Just and never my, looked back. Yeah. Yeah. My, my uh, career was really good to me and um, that's why I'm still here. <laughs> Which school did you teach at? I remember it was Catholic, but... Uh, right, I worked in the Catholic system. I, I taught in a number of schools, started at St. Michael's, then Mother Teresa, St. Patrick's, Notre Dame, and then I moved into central office and I worked, um, I was the director of early childhood services there for a number of years before I retired. And so and, you are Catholic? Yes, I was born and raised a Catholic. Like, and are you, are you still practicing? No. No, and um, since Neil died, um, before Neil died, during his struggles, I really struggled with my faith. And I, um, I couldn't understand where, where God was in my journey. And um, after Neil died, I, I finally just let go of that, that need to believe something that wasn't making sense for me, wasn't working for me. And um, I came to a realization that um, I could, I could choose myself what worked for me. And um, I feel much more at peace since I've been able to come to that decision. And I, and I believe we all have a choice. We all have, we all have choices that um, lead us in a direction we want to go and um, what makes sense to us. And so um, I gave up. Um, belonging to a, a specific faith and belonging in um, a specific God. And, but if that works for people and it does, I have friends that it works for then, then great. Um, I, I don't judge that. Do you, do you have, do you have spirituality with you at all still? Like, do you still take a spiritual approach to life at all just outside of religion or have you just sort of left that all behind? Well, yeah, and I, I don't know how you even define a spiritual approach. I, I kind of believe in a universal approach. Um, I believe in, in the universe. I believe in um, kindness. I believe in um, gratitude. Um, I'm a firm believer in nature, and nature has helped me in my healing journey, um, as well as... Um, we had a dog, Sadie, who recently had to be put down. She got sick. But um, I believe in the power of, of nature to help us heal and to make us be more in, in the present. When was Neil born? Neil was born in November of 84. 
And um, he, uh, as I said, was my first son, uh, my firstborn. Um, he went to school through the Catholic system. Um, he, we, you know, he played some sports. He wasn't really keen on playing sports. Um, he loved skateboarding. Um, consequently, we have a, a memorial bench for Neil at the skate park. So we go there every November 13th for his birthday and um, uh, a group of us gather and have a toast to Neil and uh, celebrate um, who he was and what he loved to do. But, and typical kid growing up, medicine hat kid, right? Like just like- Yeah, he, he loved uh, Kelvin and Hobbes. He, he, um, he wanted to be Kelvin, <laughs> he, uh, loved graphic novels, he loved comics. Comic cons. He, uh, he he loved Batman. He loved superheroes. Um, uh, he uh, yeah, just your your typical kid. Lots of friends. He was a real um, on the surface a, a pretty easygoing, likable guy. Um, had oodles of friends. Um, lots of buddies. And what were his, he had? He was already started into a career, was he not? when he had his accident? Well, um, what had happened was um, he was studying to be a paramedic. Right. College. And um, there's parts of the story that I don't know and I don't know that I'll ever know or that I ever want to know, but he, he got through the first year. So he was certified as an EMT. Um, he wasn't allowed to go back for a second year. Um, I believe he got kicked out of the program and I think it might have something to do with, um, uh, stealing some drugs out of, um, I don't know where, if, if he was doing, um, a practicum at the hospital. Um, so I don't know that story. So but, was that, so that that was all post accident then? Because no, that was, um, yeah, that was post accident actually. Um, he, he, he and his buddies had, you know, like kids do at the age of about 15, 16, start some kids sooner, uh, start experimenting with things. Sure. And so they were into experimenting things. Um, he did break his neck in a trampoline accident. And um, so what year was the trampoline accident? I don't know for sure. Oh, okay. But he was like, was he like sort of was a teenager, early 20s? Do you, do you remember a, that? A teenager. Um, I think he had just finished high school. It was before he started college. So he was uh, in a cervical collar. He was seeing a doctor in Calgary, a couple of doctors here in Medicine Hat. Um, but it was this, that was his introduction to opioids, correct? You know what, Scott? Um, we don't know. <laughs> I don't no. know. I do know. Um, but it is. I'm telling Sorry. tales out of school. He was working for Boylan's in the drug bug and his first overdose involved, um, he was taking some methadone out of um, some of the prescriptions and he took a certain amount um, and he uh, thought he had it figured out that he could see what it felt like to try methadone and he ended up overdosing and that was his first overdose and that was at about the age of 19. And um, that's when we started to realize that this was pretty serious. And, and prior to his first overdose, did you know that he was a person who uses drugs? No. no. So what was your, what was your reaction to that? So your first, at, it, it was the, the overdose. That's how you found out his first overdose. Yeah. I knew it was experimenting, um, but not to that degree. No. And uh, yeah, that was, that was, I wish I could say that was a huge eye-opener, but it wasn't as eye-opening as I wish it was because Neil wasn't very forthcoming in what was going on in his life. And most people that start to struggle or are struggling with their substance use, keep it hidden. Uh, there, you know, there's so much stigma associated with that. And so um, as, as close of a relationship as we had with him, he was a, you know, a young man and um, he was embarrassed and he was full of shame about what was going on. And when, when you look back 
at who you were at the time and because you would obviously your knowledge and 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 feelings about this subject have evolved in the last you know uh five years since you've really been into this but do you look back and see that you had any stigmas of your own that that do you know like because i think about like a lot of things we talk about on this show are you know evolved opinions that i have if i look back 20 years ago i'm not necessarily proud of the person i was or how i thought or approached things and i just wonder like when when our family is feeling that like they're embarrassed or that they're feeling that shame do we look back and ever think that like not that we gave them reason to have that shame but like we ourselves were part of that same stigma that they were feeling like do you do you am I making sense with that question yeah very much so that that's um you know I had to learn to forgive myself for that um you know I grew up in all white alcoholism and I um I lived in the in uh in this society that you know drugs are bad people that use drugs are bad um uh so I the the pathways in my brain have been completely altered over the last five six years because um I, I wanted to learn um, and I've educated myself, um, but sure, for sure, I felt shameful. Um, I also felt shameful as a mom that I didn't know more how to help. I reached out to professionals. Um, and so I felt shame and stigma. I can't imagine the level that Neil had to deal with. At one point, he did have an opioid prescription for pain, correct? Yeah. Yes, because I from what I my understanding of the story is that it got and as it does eventually the doctors will, you know, want you off of these things I remember having a Percocet prescription for a couple of years and then my doctor was like we got to get this, you know, let's get you off of this and, and that was that but um from my understanding of the story is that eventually he was sort of weaned off this prescription and then he began to, the, the addiction really took over and he started to manipulate the system itself in order to get more opioids. Is that sure. right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so my, um, even before he was weaned off, he was doctor shopping. And so he would drive to Lethbridge to get prescriptions filled. And, um, you know, he had pill bottles after pill bottles, is, you know, in his car and, and his buddies, and when they cleaned out his place, he just couldn't believe all the different prescriptions that he had. And so he learned how to use the system that way. Um, and then once he, whether the doctors caught on or what, I don't know for sure, but once that started drying up, so at, he was addicted to Oxy. And at that point, he had figured out how to um, how to um, inject oxy. So he would mix it with some water and then put it through a filter in his arm. Um, and then once that would not have the effect that he hoped, then he searched out stronger things. And so when he when he died, um, the autopsy and toxicology report came back and. Some of the things that they found in his house were were heroin and fentanyl. Um, and I had mentioned to you the other day, Scott, that um, he, had, he had overdosed six weeks previous to when he died. And the police officer told me that he, at that overdose, he had said he had, he had fentanyl in his system. So when Neil died with fentanyl in his system, he knew what um, he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He asked for it. I didn't know. I was horrified when I got the call from the coroner's office. Uh, it just slayed me um, because I, for some reason, I thought it can't be fentanyl. That was like the worst of the worst. And, uh, and it was. Well, and, and that's one thing that's really good to point out, I think, is that uh, I, I, my guess is that a perception in the community is that every time um, someone is injecting fentanyl it's accidental like because we hear all about the the cutting of fentanyl into certain drugs that you don't so you don't know you're getting fentanyl and these kinds of things and you're expecting something else and you get fentanyl and these are the way the drug dealers are making their money and blah 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 but these addictions especially to the opioids well really to anything but you, you your tolerance gains it's no different to people that 
you know, drink, you know, like you see alcoholics and you think about like what they put back in a day and it would kill you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually keeps them from going into withdrawals. If you've ever seen a, a true alcoholic who, who needs a beer, like they shake, right? Like it's a need. Whereas you and I like this, it's the opposite. It's the same thing with, with, with any drug. So opioids, the addiction, you need more and more and more and more and more. And I, when we were talking the other day, I, I, had, I had seen, maybe it was a intervention show or something like that. It was somebody out of, it was, talking to people in Edmonton anyway and and one of the people that they were interviewing was like taking 11 12 tablets of fentanyl a day and that was what their tolerance was like they needed that in order to get through the day and so the 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 level the, the amounts that and so that's what I guess the fact that Neil knew he was taking fentanyl like that's how bad the addiction gets is it gets to a place where there's nothing else that can feed it other than these extremely strong dangerous drugs that are you're playing with death every single time you try them and people think that people are using the drugs to get high they're not they're, they're using the drug to feel somewhat normal and to numb whatever pain they're dealing with whether it's a physical pain or emotional pain well, this, and, and, and that's like part of understanding how all of these things work is, is getting that like drugs are medicate, like we medicate ourselves first and foremost. Yes. We, as a recreation, a lot of us who have privileged lives where everything kind of goes well, we have the luxury of sort of recreationally like going to get drunk with our buddies or smoking a joint with our buddies or whatever. Right. And, uh, but it, it gets to a, st- if you like, again, anyone that's ever known an alcoholic, and I keep using that because I feel like it's at least socially known enough that we all know somebody that we've seen go through alcoholism, mm-hmm. but you see that they're not having any goddamn fun. They're not drinking to get drunk and have fun. They're now at a point where they're drinking to just get through the damn day. And without it, it's the, the, it's when they're not drunk that they are in a real problem scenario. And this is what happens with opioid users or any drug user is they get to a stage where they now are, it's the opposite, right? You're using the drug to be normal. And when you're not high is when you're in real trouble, you can't function, you can't move, you can't talk, you don't, you're, you're not productive that's what we're what people need to understand is that now it becomes something of a necessity just to get themselves through the day and that's how someone like neil can go from a trampoline accident to several years later he's finding any way he can to manipulate drug prescriptions just to get through the day yeah to like dope sickness is hell times 100 and so um, you know, I've seen Neil, he lived with us on and off, you know, it go through dope sickness and it's, it's hell for him. It was hell. It's hell for anyone. Um, so you can imagine if, if you had the flu times a thousand and somebody could say, here's take this aspirin, it's going to make you feel better. Then you would take it. And, um, it, we, we can't understand how, um, how much that controls the physical makeup of, of a person's body when they struggle with that that level of an addiction. I, I had a doctor. I had a doctor say to me, um, "Well, we've all had struggles in our life. We've all had pain. You know why? Why uh, we don't? We all don't turn to heavy duty drugs, which was a real unfair statement. Obviously, he doesn't understand. Sad that a doctor says it. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't understand that. The, the power of addiction and the um, Gabor Mate talks about um, trauma and um, whether it's physical trauma or emotional trauma. Um, and at first I felt um, hesitant to, to believe that because then I, I felt somewhat responsible for the trauma in Neil's life. And once I let go of that and realized we, we all have things that happen in our life that could lead us down that pathway um part of us are some of us are more sensitive to 
traumatic experiences than others. And, and so we find different resources in our lives to help us deal with that. And um, that was a resource that Neil found out um, and it helped make him feel like himself a little bit um, until it, it got to the point where he really, I believe, didn't like himself anymore and uh, lost his hope. And what, what was it, the experience like of sort of, I guess, discovering the extent of his, um, his sickness increasingly until he, he passed away? What was it like for, for me? And as yeah, for, from your perspective as like a parent, um, yeah. just, yeah, because, you know, it, it sounds to me like each time he would overdose, we would try different things. So we would, you know, he would, we had him go away and detox up in Lloydminster. Um, but detox is seven days. Anybody can figure out how to do, you know, seven days without a drug and then come back to it. Um, what the, I guess what, um, he borrowed my phone one time and I put my, he was sleeping at our house and I put my hand in his pocket on the floor pull the phone out and my hand he had a needle in his pocket so that's when I realized this is at that level um and uh I told him he had to leave because we had I had an eight-year-old daughter in the house um and I also felt like um I I was overwhelmed I didn't know what to do um so I had to move into town. I put him up in a, in a hotel for a week. Um, and then he lived on the streets for a while and then he couched there. So but what was it like for a family? God, it was like, it was all, it was all those words that you don't want to have in your vocabulary. It was, it was beyond overwhelming. It was, you felt, I felt so helpless and, and I would reach out for support and, uh, you know, people would give me advice, professionals would give me advice, do this, do this, and I do it. And it didn't, it was making things worse. Uh, you know, the tough love thing, uh, the, the, oh, you're enabling. And um, it, I felt, I felt like this was crazy making in my life. Um, I uh, don't wish that on any family. Um, there's just such a sense of hopelessness too. Like you, uh, yeah, it was not good. Right, because there's nothing you can do. You provided him, you know, you did the best you can as a parent, and that, you know, ultimately has nothing to do with the, the you know, his his. We all choose his path, illness. Like path, not to say we choose these paths, but we all live our path, right? And, yeah. I mean, this is the struggle of a parent. Like, we know that we have a responsibility to and of our kids, but at the same time, they do make choice or they do live their life, right? I hate to say make choices because again, like what what Neil went through is I don't think we, well, we, nobody chooses that, right? No, exactly. Uh, yeah, but I do want to I do want to ask you a question. And I apologize for the manner and, and the the phrasing of it because I sometimes do that on this show. The talk from the from the other side, but you know we live in Alberta right now and a lot of people would look at you and just be like, you know, well, how come he didn't just uh, go to recovery and end this? Like, why didn't he just choose a way out? We're opening so many beds. Right? Like, like Jason Lawan would say. Thousands of beds. I, don't, I mean, like, because, you know, we, we, we're going to get into Mom Stop the Harm here in a minute. And obviously, harm reduction is something we've talked about on this show. Uh, supervised consumption is something you've advocated for uh, right up into safe supply, decriminalization. And we can get in that, to that stuff today as well. But in Alberta, currently, you're told to suck it up and fucking go recover, right? Like, that's it. Like, if you just stop. Like we gave you a recovery bed. What else do you want? So um, if I, if you're answering Jason Lawan when he says to you, well, how come Neil didn't just go and recover from this? What's your answer? Well, Other first of all, screw off. <laughs> <laughs> I have met with Jason Lawan. We've had these conversations. Um, 
why didn't Neil go the recovery bed? There isn't a recovery bed waiting for him right now. Um, I've had, I have friends now that uh, back then, you know, when Neil was struggling, there were less recovery beds than there so supposedly are now, but there's wait lists and those wait lists are still three months long. If you, if you say as a human being, I'm ready to go into recovery, you need to have that bed available right now. You, your body cannot wait three months and there's a real good chance you're going to come across some, you're still going to use your drug to try to, to, to make some sense out of your life. And, and you're probably going to end up getting something that you didn't expect in overdose. Um, so plus a person has to have to be ready to approach recovery. Most people that go into recovery don't just do it once. They need to go through recovery is like seven to 11 times. So it's, Recovery isn't the be-all end-all. Plus, our, our province right now is really pushing pushing um, abstinence-only recovery. And that in itself isn't effective for everybody. Um, people can, can um, I, think, I think recovery needs to be up to the individual and, and how that individual feels he wants his life to be and not prescribed what... Um, our associate minister of addiction and mental health or our premier thinks it should be because they have no idea. Who is the associate minister now? Cause there's a cabinet shuffle. I think Luan got shuffled out. Well, we, we actually, she's got some thoughts on that. I think she was saying, right. Yeah. So, so Jason Luan got a promotion. He's no longer an associate minister. He's now a minister. So he did his job of doing what, he was told to do and so he got promoted for it so now we have a new associate minister named mike ellis and he is oh, yeah. a former police officer yeah. um so if that is his specific training on how to be uh associate minister of addiction and mental health how many people he arrested that were um struggling with substance use or uh, using in public because they probably didn't have a supervised consumption site to use um then we're in big trouble. Um, I mean, the likelihood is he's going to be a product of his environment, right? And his yes, environment was yes. was the letter of the law and arresting these people. That's yeah. how he handled it. You're That's breaking right. the law. Right. Right? right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's not surprising. That's how the UCP uh, has approached this kind of, I mean, they've never really tried to separate crime and drug addiction. Like they, they don't try to, they, they, they don't try to hide the fact that, you know, it, they're pretty sure that if you're addicted to drugs and getting the legal street drugs, you're a criminal too. Like you're doing breaking the law. They allow that opinion to exist. Like, why yeah. are we allowing these supervised consumption sites where people can go and break the law? And they're like, they allow that opinion. Yeah, that's a legitimate opinion. Why should we create this place where people can go and do illicit drugs? Like it's, this is the mindset they have. So Mike Ellis being the being the new associate minister doesn't shock me at all. Uh, maybe this is a really good time for you to, for us to just chat a little bit about Mom Stop the Harm because I really do want to make sure we uh, explain what this group is. Um, from, from my understanding, started about 2015 with three moms that you now know pretty well who were they Calgary or Edmonton that or both maybe that lost um, sons or daughters to addiction. They, and um, said enough of this, right? So the th two of them were from Edmonton, and uh, one was a mom in uh, on Pender Island, and um, in out in BC. And they um, they sort of connected through news articles, and um, all three lost their sons to drug harms. And um, they are uh, real passionate go-getter type of women, and we're not going to tolerate sitting back and watching our loved ones dying when there was um, supports and, and uh, policies that could be put in place to save lives. And so they started the group, Mom Stop the Harm. Um, I believe we have over 2000 family members across Canada. It's just, it's not just for moms. Um, however, it started by with moms. Um, and um, so after Neil died, I was Googling support groups. Um, I, I, uh, I think grief from, uh, from losing a child to um, such a stigmatized reason why he died 
um, is a different type of grief. And so I, I, I found the supports in medicine hadn't were working. So I reached out to Mom Stop the Harm. So they, they so we sort of, that group has two sides. One side is a, a supporting side for people that are struggling. And the other side is the advocacy side. And so I um, initially was able to speak with family members that spoke the same language as a grieving mom. Um, and I didn't feel like I had to explain things. I didn't have to, um, nobody was rolling their eyes or avoiding my, my, uh, me because of how my son had died. Um, so I so felt like the stigma that he felt during his addiction, you had to feel that after his death, like when people found out talking to you that your son died of an overdose, did you feel that look from them? Like that look of, well, yeah, for sure. And I, I even, people even blamed me for his death and said, I should have been, I should have known better. I should have been a better mom. I uh, um, should have sent him away to, to recovery and, and um, yeah, which you did, which I did. Yes. And I, I, yeah, I felt it. It was huge. It's, it's, um, it's, that must be a struggle of just very, it's very complicated grief. And um, it's like, nobody has a, you know, it's different if your, your loved one dies of cancer, you get treated differently. Um, just like, you know, somebody with a mental illness, it's uh, because people can't see it, if that's stigmatized. And, and Neil struggled with some mental illness issues too. Of course he did, you know, depression and anxiety. Um, anyway, so with Mom Stop the Harm, uh, we have an advocacy side and it's nationwide. So we have chapters in every province and um, we're um, people get involved at whatever level they want to get involved and uh, do advocacy at whatever comfort level they have. Um, nobody's pushed into doing anything they, they don't want to do. Um, although I must say uh, you would think after five years of doing this that it gets easier. Um, it, I don't think it doesn't necessarily get easier. It's easier talking to you guys and people that I know support the journey um, and, and don't question what I'm doing. Um, it's, um, but it's still incredibly emotional. So anytime you do an interview or um, talk to a, a, a journalist or, you know, or I've done some, some documentaries, I can't say it, it takes a part of you away, but it, uh, you have to be really careful with your energy afterwards because it's, it can be quite exhausting and um, it, it involves a lot of self-care. You, you have, I mean, you still have a family that includes two children who are still with you. Do you have trouble sometimes making that balance? Like I know you have such a dedication to um, honoring Neil and, and, and making sure that his death isn't in vain and that something positive comes from this, the, the kind of grief mums like you have felt. Do you have trouble sometimes or is there ever a struggle just making sure you're balanced and staying um you know, keeping your focus on you and your family that's, you know, still has lives to live? Yeah, so much so that um, I had, I left my career um, that I loved. Um, after Neil died, I, so part of, you know, I had over a hundred staff that I oversaw and um, I, I didn't have the compassion. I didn't have the patience or the empathy for, those the staff and, and their issues and their needs and I and I didn't have the concentration anymore and so I, I left that job and then with my advocacy work um, yeah it, it is tricky to stay balanced and sometimes I find that uh, doing doing advocacy because I don't do it necessarily because I go I don't believe anymore that 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 really I'm going to be changing hearts and minds that's a smidge of it but I do it because it's the right thing to do. And, um, but, uh, I, I do have to be very, it's that part actually, I have to say, Scott is getting a little bit easier to 
for, try to find a balance in that so that I have, you know, things that I can do after this interview, for example, that will sort of help bring me to a, a little more equilibrium in my life. What are those? Mow the grass. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something you find uh, uh, therapeutic? Mowing the grass? Yeah. I definitely, yes. I love mowing grass. Uh, I do it. Um, uh, I'm very, I'm quite an active person. And so that's, uh, I walk and ride my bike. I'll probably ride my bike later today. But um, activity, um, being outside helps me get back to more of a, a centered state. I mean, it does sound like some of what you are doing, or maybe at least in the beginning, getting into Mums Up the Harm, you said you were looking for support. It was obviously a way to help you process this tragedy in your life. Do, do you have an idea of how your other kids who's, who lost their older brother have processed this? Or have they? do you know if they've struggled processing or have they found an avenue like yours or similar that allows them to process process what has happened because I just I'm the youngest and I can just imagine oh I can only imagine I should say what it would be like to lose an older sibling and it would it would affect your very existence so my um my daughters um uh have been very supportive of my advocacy and you know if I'm giving a talk or something they'll come and be there physically to support me um, my one daughter, um, who, um, so there's a bit of an age span between Neil and my youngest daughter, it was like, was about a 14 year difference, but between Erica and Neil, there was only a couple of years. So they had a different relationship than Neil and Grace did. And so I, I, it was quite hard on Erica. Um, she's, you know, uh, met with counselors. Um, we talked very openly, um, about Neil and his journey, Matter of fact, when I told her I was doing this, she said, I don't even know what I'd say about Neil. And I said, sometimes I don't even know either. I just hope afterwards when I listen to it that I have um, been truthful and, and honored who he was and, and honor her and, and their relationship too. So um, she definitely uh, struggled. Um, my daughters are somewhat more reserved than their mother is. And so um, they, they're they 100% behind what I do and give me feedback, but you know, it's not in their nature to- Be in the limelight over it? Not like I do, yeah. yeah. Do you find, look over the last five years that you've been doing this, where do you, how do you see the progression of what you've been trying to do? Because in a lot of ways, I think we're, we're seeing society unwrap some of the stigma and, and maybe uh, more people are approaching this from a compassionate side. But at the same time, our government's doing everything they can, it seems to go backwards. So from where you started to 2021, how do you approach, uh, sort of look at the evolution and do you see it as a steady stream of positivity or is it a lot of ebbs and flows or are you behind where you want it to be? Provincially, it's behind where I want it to be. Um, in I do think that um, by us speaking about this openly, um, by the moms um, and the family members speaking about it openly, that it, it it's uh, people are coming forward. Partly though, because of the amount of people that are losing loved ones to um, a tainted drug supply, to really to bad drug policy and, and it feels like we're going backwards in that area in this province um you know the we had supervised consumption sites starting up we had some the busiest one in north america in, yeah, in lethbridge yes, right exactly over 600 visits a day and then that gets shut down by the government basing their decisions on ideology and morality. and how many deaths again on site how many uh, overdose deaths None in zero. the world, zero <laughs> across the world at any site. Yeah. Do you know I mean, how? Do you have any that, idea? That's literally why they exist, right? Right. Yeah. You must have people. an idea how many overdoses were reversed at in Lethbridge alone. Too, it must be thousands, though. Oh, thousands. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, that's a lot of death. Like yes. that's a lot of death. Yeah. That you're reversing. Like it's, do you know what I mean? <sighs> Literal so, harm reduction. Anyway. Yeah. So are those people whose lives have been reversed not worthy of having their lives reversed? Because maybe perhaps they're not ready to go into recovery. Um, does that make them any lesser of a human being? Um, it feels like it. It feels like they're being treated that way. Well, and like you said earlier about about um, sort of that, it, there's a window, right? You, you sometimes when you're addicted, you're you're a, a substance user, and it's become to the point of an addiction. You have moments where you're like, I need out of this, and that can last a short period of time. It's a short window, and this is sort of the importance of. That's what you say, like if there's a, if you're on a wait list, when you go to get recovery, there's no fucking way you're going to be interested in recovering by the time you're off that wait, wait list. Like these windows of opportunity are very small. And so when you have somebody that's willing, you need to be able to jump them into that, that recovery right now when they're, when they're ready, because that readiness is fragile, super, super fragile. And so you want a nurse an addictions nurse, like a Corey Ranger, literally standing beside you when that moment of clarity hits, right? Yeah. And, and you'd want a Corey Ranger to keep going with you throughout your recovery because Corey understands he, he shows no judgment. He, uh, he understands the needs of someone that's struggling with their substance use. Um, and that's been a problem for some people is they've end up perhaps in, in, um, a situation in a hospital and this happened to Neil um, where he felt ostracized. He felt like he, he wasn't worthy to be there. Um, so doesn't, I, I would expect a person wouldn't want to be sticking around. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm look at the numbers, look at what, what the UCP has done in this province and they can spout all the facts they want about, beds and recovery programs and um giving out free naloxone kits are what where's the proof that that is making the difference that we need are the numbers going down no if you look at any of their charts those numbers are going up here in medicine hat from when neil died to now we have had the biggest for for a hundred if you looked at say based on a hundred thousand um, even though we don't have that many in Medicine Hat, but percentage-wise, we've had the biggest amount of deaths from overdose from 2016 to now. Um, we don't have a supervised consumption site. Um, well, I mean, we've been sold, honestly, we've been sold on the idea that, like, that is that is due to, like, a bad economy and covid lockdowns and things like that right like that that like you know the ndp's policies or something like this like led to more mental health issues and like if people just had like a minimum wage job to go to for 60 hours a week they wouldn't have addiction issues and all of these things right where it's yeah, like right. <laughs> right but like this is kind of how we we approach these things like they like this you know we had the what record number of overdoses last year in Alberta and what a hundred percent of the blame is on the, the, the strain, the mental strain of COVID like there's, but there's so many things, right? Like every, we talked about this a few weeks ago um, when we did our, our <laughs> odd drugs are more fantastic than we give them credit for episode. And that's what people need to remember that they do work. Um, but the we uh fuck i did it again i forgot what i was gonna say jeremy do you got anything we can just cut that part that i just said yeah i i, I was wondering um like how because I, I i think your uh story is a remarkable one of you know overcoming pain and grief and loss and in channeling it into something positive. And I guess I'm just wondering, how do you do that? Because I, you know, I think, I think a lot of people 
wouldn't if they were in it breaks people your situation yeah exactly so how do you do it how do you how do you not get broken down and just because especially the fact that you're fighting against something it seems right well i think it would be a fallacy to think that we don't get broken down um we do get broken down but but there's a collective of us um with different strengths and so um I don't have to do it all. Um, and uh, if I need to step back for a bit, um, I have to give myself permission to do that. Um, but uh, I have to tell you, like, it's maybe it's just who I am. Maybe that, that's just how I'm built. Uh, I did come close to, to the abyss a couple of years ago. Um, and was concerned with with my mental health and whether I was wanted to stay on this earth. It wasn't that I didn't want to stay on the earth. I just didn't want to feel the pain that I was feeling. And um, and I equate that back to Neil, how hell it must have been for him. I can't even imagine. Um, and, you know, I have a really really good doctor, and uh, you know, I've quite openly say that I use antidepressants to help me. Um, not feel so hopeless and to make my life make a little more sense. Um, I think part, I was just always kind of a doer kind of person and I'm always happy, happier being a doer kind of person. And so doing things make sense to me. It, it brings me a sense of, of um, and I don't believe in being dutiful, but I just, I, I like doing stuff. That's how it was made. There's there's other people that um, aren't made that way, and so there's there's no secret to how come I can do this and not get broken down. Like I said, we do get broken down. Um, I think as I get older, I learn to have better self care. It's literally just going to ask you that, like if you've gotten a good understanding of the importance of self-care because unless you're unless you're at your best you might as well not even try to fight this fight exactly yeah and so we as moms uh, uh, we rely on each other um i have a couple of really good close friends i i walk at least twice a day sometimes more i ride my bike um i have a garden i have a memorial garden in my backyard for neil I have my kids, I have my husband. Um, we had a dog that we walked every day. Our dog just died a couple of weeks ago. But um, I, I think it's all, it's all, as you get older, you learn. And I struggled with this my whole life is what are people going to think of me? But I'm learning to, you know, I just, I got to say the truth. I got to, because otherwise I can't put my head on the pillow at the end of the day. Is, is there a win here? And, and, what I mean by that is you, you get into something like mom stop the harm almost as self-care at, in the beginning, something to get yourself some support. Then you end up on the advocacy side and you get into this fight. And sometimes we get into these fights that we don't, we just know that that's what we're doing. Like we, they just become part of us, the fight, but is there a, is there a place where moms from mom stop the harm or the folks that are part of what you're doing go, Hey, we did it. Like, do you actually see getting to a place in, in your lifetime where, where we do approach drug addiction the right way? And is there a place where you can sit back and, and put your feet up and say, we've accomplished this? That's, that's a good question. I never thought of it like that. Um, I rely a lot on hope that we're slowly turning the boat around. Um, some days I feel like uh, it, it's moved a little bit more than, than the next day. And sometimes it feels like the, the waves are pushing it in the wrong direction. Um, do I see it in my lifetime? Um, I, uh, the potential is definitely there. It, it could, it, things could change tomorrow, could change today. If um, the people in power, the politicians would follow scientific evidence and, and change drug policy, uh, set up safe supply, uh, decriminalization for personal use, um, and um, people weren't treated with 
with as disrespectfully as they are. Um, do I think it's going to happen in my lifetime? I rely on hope for that, but I, I did. I haven't told you that I'm going to live to like I'm 439. So <laughs> hopefully, because I got I got a hell of a lot to learn. So I'm going to be alive for a while. <laughs> so we've got some time, is what you're saying? Yes, right. All right. All <laughs> we, right. We actually, well. and no, we don't have some time. We don't. Uh, any, any, you know, I had a mom phone me the other day. Her son overdosed and she read my name somewhere and so she reached out so we're connecting next week and we're going to go for coffee the, there is no time you know the 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 answer we have the answers um we just need the political will to follow through on it i mean someone's died of an overdose well we've been sitting here talking guaranteed exactly. right like yeah. this is a thing like we cannot have you actually have you uh i believe i know the answer to this but have you been out to Vancouver into like East Hastings or anything like that and walked around. I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be, uh, I don't know if eye opening is the word, but certainly it, it has to be an, an emotional experience. It very much so emotional. It's, uh, it's almost too much for, for me as a mom who lost a son to, to uh, view. Um, you just see kids with moms there, don't you? Yeah. And, and you feel like, uh, like you, you know, it's that story where you throw the one um, turtle back into the water and there's thousands on the beach and the guy says, well, you know, you're not helping. Look at all these other turtles. And, and you say, well, you help that one turtle. And that's how you have to approach it. One little person that you help or you smile at or you, you say hello or you have a conversation with or you buy a sandwich for or you you give them some money so perhaps they can buy their drugs so that they don't have to sell their body to get their drugs or they don't have to steal. So, you know, you, you, uh, but it's, it, it's definitely overwhelming. Yeah. The, that's a great way to, a uh, great thing to say there is I hate that, uh, well, I'm not giving them money. They're just going to spend it on drugs or alcohol. Fucking so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, know. Like, I mean, what do you spend your money? I mean, whatever, like, yeah, give, and, and, give them six minutes of smiles for crying out loud. Let them get grief. They're going to find it anyway. Like you said, they're going to do a more dangerous thing. You, you can't, you, you're, you're to this idea that you're, you're not giving them like this, you're, you're enabling or whatever. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that mindset and we, we can obviously like you can, there are ways to enable addiction that, that can be problematic, I'm sure. But um, for a lot of these people, like they, they just need some, acknowledgement of themselves too in a lot of ways right like they do feel forgotten like we sweep them under the rug and they know that they're they know where they are they know how we look at them as a society right yeah if you if you have um come across uh, a book called lost connections by yohan hari um and uh he he that's a that's a big thing that i think happens when people um struggle with their substance use is they they've lost those connections, those meaningful connections in their life. And um, I, I believe that's partly what happened with Neil. Um, that, that, that's a great book. Um, yeah. I, I do highly recommend our listeners read it. Yeah. It's one of also, the few books on Jeremy's shelf that he's read there. <laughs> I, I, I think I have it on my uh, e-reader. But, yeah. I would also recommend uh, Gabor Mate's in the realm of hungry ghosts um, for someone who wants to understand um, addictions, not just addictions to um, drugs, but any kind of addiction and about the, the trauma connection. And um, uh, I think it, um, once you read that book, you can't help but um, have a little more empathy uh, and, and an open, open mind to uh, the struggle. Hundred percent, Jeremy. We have to we have to cut our cut off this episode here. Do you have any final questions for our guest today? Uh, no. I was going to ask if you have any other book recommendations, but <laughs> you answered that. Um, there's a new one that's just released called uh, "The Weight of Air," and I just ordered it through the bookstore. It's not. I don't even. I think it's coming out in print. It just didn't have any in the bookstore yet. Um, the author's first, he's on Twitter. The author's first name is David somebody. 
the weight of air. That's prop that's supposed to be a good one. Um, My last question for you would be, if I am a parent or a family member who has either lost someone to addiction or is maybe in the process of thinking I might be going down that road, how do I get a hold of Mom Stop the Harm and get involved? Uh, good question. I'm glad you brought that up because um, if, if somebody Googles Mom Stop the Harm, you're going to go to their website, www.momstoptheharm.com. And you are going to find a realm of resources, of support. Um, we also have a Facebook group. Um, and there's two parts of that Facebook group. So a part that the general public can have access to. And then a private, we have a private group for um, that you have to be approved to join. And so in that group, um, it's for people that um, have either lost a loved one or have someone struggling. So um, you can go on there in the middle of the night and find somebody that's going to be there that you can talk to. So I highly recommend um, Mom Stop the Harm. And, and, and for people that are reaching out for that personal connection, they will find it there. Like it's, it's, it's real people who have are, who know what you're going through and, and know uh, that you need somebody um, to support. There's an excellent resource on there. Um, We also have it in Medicine Hat and I've given it to all of the funerals except for one didn't want it. It's called gone too soon. Um, And so if uh, someone is, has lost a loved one, um, it's a good resource to start reading. And it's Excellent. available on that website. Kim, listen, I I really want to thank you for coming on the show this week. And uh, it's, like I said, it was one that we were really looking forward to doing for a long time. Um, we think you're amazing. Like your story is, uh, it's hard. It's a hard story, but um, it's, there's beauty to to what is happening and uh it gives a real honor and a beauty to neil's life and i think that's a like a really as a son like that's just a touching thing to know um to see a mom who loves like that so like you uh more than just i like chatting with you like you kind of inspire me so i appreciate you being able to come on the show Thanks. Thanks very much, Scott. And, and having people like you reach out and wanting to hear the story and hear what we do helps to uh, keep the fires going inside that uh, this matters. 100%. Yeah. Always great to talk to you, Kim. Um, and uh, miss see- running into you in Medicine Hat. Yeah, but, we're, but I hear you're coming to town here in August, so we're going to get together. Yes, August and possibly end of July. Okay, well, possibly when we, by the time this episode airs. Okay, well, let's hang out when that happens. Yeah, anyways, I'm going to be back, Madison, that once or twice a summer. All right. Okay. This okay. is the time in the show where we thank those of our patrons who go above and beyond everything, anything we could ever ask for. To Nicola Dinicola, to Chris Derwold, to Dave Bonmiller, to the rest of our patrons, to our listeners, to our families, our friends. Thank you so much for everything you guys do for us. We couldn't do the show without you. Uh, You inspire us every day to keep coming back and doing it again. So uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week, which I think will be sometime in August in your world. Anyway, love you guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's right.